Welcome to the Cocktail Lovers Podcast. I'm Sandra. And I'm Gary. And together, we are the Cocktail Lovers. We're a married couple and we've been writing about cocktails for the past 12 years. But this is the place where we'll be talking about cocktails. We're going to be talking about products. We're going to be talking about books. And we're going to be talking about the bars that we love and we think that you'll love too. We'll also be checking in with some of the biggest names in the industry and asking them to share their top tips with us to help you up your mixing game at home. We like to think of ourselves as your new best friends cocktail wise so let's hear what's on the show this week after what seems like the longest summer holiday ever we're back armed with a brand new trophy to take pride of place on our mantelpiece and more cocktail shenanigans for your listening pleasure before we get on to what's on the show this week we need to take a moment to big ourselves up as we said in the intro we've got another trophy in our arsenal Oh yes, the Cocktail Lovers podcast picked up best broadcast, podcast or online video series at the Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards in New Orleans, which is fabulous news for us and proof that you're tuning in to the good stuff. Now, enough about us. What you want to know is, what are we coming back with? We have Basu, a honey-based aperitif from Britain, and Kenobi, a big hit in gin from Japan. Our book review also puts Japan, its drinks, artistry and traditions under the spotlight with Julian Mimosa's award-winning The Way of the Cocktail. Closer to home, we bow down to the delights of Little Mercies in London's Crouch End before catching up with Alex Francis from Little Red Door in Paris to talk about what's in season, the importance of local and farm-to-glass drinking. But first... Like we always say, we are the cocktail lovers, so let's make ourselves a cocktail. Blimey, it's been ages since we've done this. I feel a little bit out of practice, actually. Oh, no, no, it, it does feel like a, re- a, a long, long time, but the, the last whatever it is... Month, two months, two months has flown by. I mean, we've had actually a summer and enjoyed the <laughs> summer. It's incredible. So, yeah. what have we got to report then, Mister G? Well, obviously, I'm going to mix us up a little welcome back cocktail, and it feels like ages also since I've made us a cocktail. Obviously, no, you've made no. quite a few cocktails <laughs> in that time. I've made us a lot of cocktails, mm. and we've made some for our friends and family recently, which was very nice. But it seems it has been aging since I've made you one in this situation. Indeed, it has been. So, what you doing? What I'm doing? I'm doing. I love this expression because I always use it incorrectly. I'm doing a mashup. Right? <laughs> Is that right? When you mix well, two things, it depends though? what you're going to okay. say. Right. I'm doing a mashup, and it's what I've de- what I decided to do was take two of our favourite things and combine them right and those two favorite things being a dry martini and champagne and the reason for the champagne we may well come on to shortly because this has got a celebratory element about this cocktail always room for celebrations my so friend. we'll come on to that so yes i'm mixing those two things up and um, you're right sorry yeah. yes that is a mashup 
Oh, <laughs> I got it right. My my tutor, who I am looking at on all things streetwise, uh, has just put me right. So yeah, it is indeed a yeah, mashup. Sandra from the street. Uh, <laughs> Gaza from the block. <laughs> right. Uh, where was I? Yeah. Right. So I'm putting those two things together, mashing them up. And I haven't invented this, by the way. I Definitely haven't invented this. And when you sort of take cocktails and want to give them a bit of fizz, our late great friend Gaz Reagan, in his amazing book, which I think we should talk about at some point, he said there were like two ways you could kind of do this. You could either mix up a regular cocktail and then top it with a little fizz, or just use a little bit of cocktail as a base and then top it with loads of fizz, both of which are a great idea and both of which we have done at some point. But I found this other version which i really like and i'm indebted to mr simon difford because i found he uh had this one called a millionaire's cocktail so i'm liking that already mm-hmm. i hope it's i hope it's all, uh auspicious Have you send lottery ticket <laughs> <laughs> yes let's do that and simon in turn he credits the folks at sipsmith gin who in turn say is a prohibition cocktail so are you keeping up by the way on all those uh, almost in- indebtedness mm. line of so all those things brings us back to this lovely drink called a millionaire's martini which i've not made before but uh i'm quietly confident it's going to be brilliant well with all of those uh, <laughs> names going i think it will be right so you start off with you know pretty much a standard kind of martini so i've got my glasses chilling and uh i'm just putting plenty of ice into my mixing glass and but this martini i'm making i'm just chucking ice on the floor oh, no. i just don't <laughs> i'm out of practice too i just don't care right. i love the fact that they keep talking about the podcast will have videos accompanying them you, i don't think this one will somehow you, really you do not that, need folks. to see what's going on behind no, these scenes like a well-oiled machine <laughs> right this version of the martini is actually a, a 50 50 martini so right. rather than the sort of dry martini that we might to sort of err towards this is absolutely half and half so i'm going with 40 mils of gin a good quality gin and 40 mil of dry vermouth so there you go it's a 50 50 martini I like 50-50s now, actually. You do, actually. I don't know. My preference has changed a lot, and I'm much more preferring that sort of softer style of of martini. So I'm happy with that so far. Well, actually, it's interesting to say that, because I think that softness will hopefully work well with the the fears. So as ever, making sure I'm giving that a good old stir, diluting away. That's... Excuse me, folks. I'm just going to have a little taste. Make see what that's like. Good. Good. I just want it a little bit more chilled, I okay, think, actually, okay. if that's okay. But uh, maybe, could you help me out while I'm doing that? Could I hand you the fizz? Because you're... Oh, God. You know why he's doing this? It's because <laughs> this bottle may be a little bit lively, and I think he wants me to... Um suffer the consequences well, should anything go wrong there's a but anyway cloth. you carry on stirring no, i shall I, do this i'm always in awe of your fizz opening oh don't skills. say that he's trying to uh soft yes, soap you. soft soap me well let's see so yes we're talking about we've had a nice long summer we've been off there's been lots of things going on in the cocktail world lots of great new products lots of new openings 
lots of new bars and people doing great things. So it's a fantastic time to come back because there's so much to talk about. And actually, while we've always focused on London bars for our reviews in, in previous episodes, this one, in this season, we will be talking about our travels as well and some yeah. of the amazing bars that we go to around the world. So we're looking forward to that. Ooh, Ooh. I managed, I managed. Look at that, folks. Like a not pro like professional. <laughs> not a drop was spilt. And while you were doing that so deftly, if I may say so, my darling, I strained off my 50-50 martini into some nice coupe glasses because I thought they looked a bit more celebratory. And now I am topping up with 20 ml of champagne. Champagne. Oh, champagne, as the guys <laughs> at the Artesian used to say. I right. love that. Lovely. No garnish or anything. And right, so we are celebrating. Are we going to... Whoops. Let me pass the one I didn't slot to you. Thank you. We go. And we... Oh, cheers. Right. Cheers, darling. Whoop. Cheers. Cheers. And are we going to say why we're celebrating? Yes, I think we should. Me? Yep. Um... That's mm, nice, that's by the lovely. way, isn't it? Yeah. And um, the reason we're celebrating, we had during the closed season, if that's what we call it, we had some fantastic news that we're really p- happy and proud of, which was at the recent Tales of the Cocktail Spirited Awards. Which, in New Orleans. In New Orleans, which are described within the industry, the drinks industry, uh, like the Oscars of the drinks world. And we were nominated for Best Broadcast podcast or online video series and we won we won so (laughs) yes so we were we're so chuffed about that and um so this is for everyone who voted for us for all of our listeners yeah for everything and also for the whole amazing cocktail world that we write and talk about yeah and we're proud to be a part of absolutely so cheers 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 all around and happy new season Okay, so we've got a new product this week. It's something that I haven't seen before, actually. And I don't know, there's not that much information about it. I've been trying to do my research. I can't really find too, too much about it. It was launched, I don't know when, but it's long enough that they're having a refresh. Put it that way. Okay. But it's still quite new, I think. It's called Bisu. And the reason why, it's all about bees and natural honey. So it's a a bittersweet aperitif drink, 11% ABV, so quite light. What they're doing, it's, as I say, all natural aperitif blended from 100% ethically sourced British honey. Wow. And the That's rest a great of the story already. Yeah, and the yeah. rest of the ingredients are natural botanicals. So pink grapefruit, chinotto, bitter orange, spring water, and a natural safflower extract. Mm. So it's a nice little, little cork. Actually, just say, can you just say a little bit about the bottle for you? Yes, Paul? but yeah. I don't want to say too much oh, about okay. the bottle because they're actually repackaging this oh, as okay. we speak. Right. So we're lucky that we've got one of the old the old packaging bottles before it's okay. relaunched. All right, okay. Um, but at the moment, all I can say, it's quite a 
amber-coloured liquid, and it looks like liquid honey, doesn't it? it? You know, much uh, nice and yellow. It's got a lovely little, you know, that little dimple that you get at the bottom of 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 bottles. Yeah, it looks like a beehive, which I think is lovely. Yeah, I like that, and you can see right through the glass. So I don't know how they're going to change it, but I hope not too much, and I hope that they still keep that hint of yellow, that honey thing coming through. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm. So, as I say, there's not too much about it when you're looking for for the ingredients and to to find out more about the background. All I can say is the company behind it are called Behave Beverages, which I quite (laughs) like. See what they um, did there. See what they did, absolutely. But I liked all that stuff you were saying about the the naturalness of it. Yeah, and and they work with crafters and makers – to, and their whole thing is about respecting the environment. They're actually a B Corp um, company as well. So that goes to show that they are all about their ethically sourcing and things like that. And also 10% of the profits of the of sales go to bees for development. So that's, um, that's a good thing about it. So let's go in for the taste. Yeah. What are you thinking? Well, I was, while you were chatting there, I was mm-hmm. giving it a little nose. And it's, I expected, not surprisingly, to get a big the honey, honey mm. and I, I haven't. And it's it's more like, the, on the nose, it reminds me of like a sort of fortified wine or yeah, something. Yeah, I was going to say that. It's sort of um, like mead, really, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. That sort of, that richness of, of it. Not too, too sweet. Although you know that there's some sweetness going mm. on. What do you think? I haven't tasted it yet. You have. But uh, yeah, I like, I mean, I've said that. I've said that. I've said this before on our mm. podcast that mm. I'm always a little bit nervous about anything with honey in because I like honey, but in small doses. So any recipe product served that says honey, I'm always a little bit. Mm, mm, I- but this is an aperitif and it has yeah. got that bitterness behind yeah. it. Well, which that's I what I can say. It definitely has got honey there, but it's very yes. subtle. But that bitterness really offsets the sweetness. Yeah, that's um chin chin oh, I can never say that one, but it's the bark that it has be, been going on behind mm. it. And also the chinotto. So it is very much an aperitif style drink. So mm. you've got that bitterness, even though there is a little bit of sweet. You get that sweet Yeah. It's I a lovely it's... journey, shall we say, yeah. of, of taste. And I think the balance between the the honey and the, mm. the bitterness is really good, actually. Also, it's not too yeah. cloying, is it? No, it's not really at all. nice, and, and the finish mm. is very dry, which it I didn't is. expect at all. Absolutely. So, how they say to serve it, they have a bisu spritz. So it's one part bisu and two parts sparkling wine, and then a, a wedge of pink grapefruit. So okay. the, the yeah. pink grapefruit would echo the pink grapefruit in the yes. in the bottle. So, seeing as we've got some champagne there, it would be rude not to well, not to have a no. little tot. What, uh, actually, oh, let me oh, yeah. pass the bottle to we'll you. We'll just put that on top. Yeah. I think that will be rather nice, yeah. actually. Let me... Mm. And they also have another serve, which is called a Begroni, which I don't have the recipe for, Begroni. but obviously yeah. a Negroni with this mixed into it. So, that would be the bitter element that you get with your... Negroni. Mm. That's really nice with the fizz, isn't it? Yeah. That works. Yeah, we've well. had some good mm. fizz going on here today. Very Welcome happy back. With that. Yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely happy with that. <laughs> Me so, too. 
The thing is, unfortunately, not yet. It's not for sale yet. You can try it in select London bars, which is a little bit naughty of me to include. But I wanted to have a new drink, you know, yeah. so something to to honour and talk about as we're as yeah. we're coming back. So at the moment, it's available in London bars like the Chiltern Firehouse, the Savoy. Annabelle's, very five-star bars, yeah. um, the Gorin, Lanesborough, Nobu. But I'm sure now that they're coming back with their repackaging and relaunch, that they've got different outlets yeah. well, available. Well, let's put it out there that we, we think this should yeah, be absolutely. more widely available. So watch this space and we'll let you know. But this is to be aware of Bisu. My product this week is Kenobi Gin. Mm-hmm. Now, that isn't a new product, is it? Not new. I suppose it depends what you mean by new. It's not new, new, but mm. it's only about five or six years old. So in the history of gin, I suppose it's, it is it's, pretty uh, new. it's not even an adolescent, <laughs> is it? But no, I'm really glad to, we've, we've got this one, actually, because it's a gin I've sort of been aware of for a while. And it's a lovely, lovely story. I'll just give you a little... Bit, a wee bit about background on Kenobi, uh, which literally means Kenobi means the beauty of the seasons. Lovely. So it evokes a nice picture, I think. And it is distilled, blended, and bottled in Kyoto in Japan. And note there that I said blended. Now, the reason I've stressed that is what I, I was intrigued by when I was doing my little bit of research on this is, you know, most gins, not all, but most gins, they tend to put all the botanicals in and distill them as a whole, which works a treat. But what they've done here, they've separated the botanicals into six, what they call six elements. And these elements are base, citrus, tea, herbal, and fruity and floral. Is that six? Yeah. And within that, so they've broken down the, mm. the various sort of Elements, botanicals, yeah. yeah, that which are by and large local Japanese botanicals. So, so for instance, under base you've got the juniper oris. Um, under citrus you've got lemon and yuzu. Under tea you've got green tea. Under herbal you've got sancho pepper, and so on. Mm. So these are all distilled separately, and then blended. And they use their what they refer to as their sort of blending craftsmanship to bring these together. I should also say that the spirit base is actually a rice spirit, which again, very much nods to its uh, heritage. And the water is from the Saki brewing district of Fushumi, if I've said that right, Fushumi. So there's a lot of interesting Mm. things going on. And also I'll briefly mention the bottle. I want to have a little look at this bottle. It's very elegant. I don't know, is that black or is it? No, yeah, it's not, it it's, is. It's, it is black. Very, very Really lovely. Um, very Japanese in, in, in its sparseness, I yes. would say. And also just in the beautiful way of the typography, not just the, the Japanese wordings or um, symbols that you yeah. put down, but even in the bits of English that you can read, it's very clear, crisp and beautifully balanced i think and balance really does feature very much in japanese craftsmanship doesn't it yeah it's lovely and then it's peppered with lovely bits of gold or copper little insignias and and things like that but in a very understated yeah yeah way so we like the bottle we like the backstory let me just get this seal off there you go. Is it copper, would you say, or gold? The light in um, here is a little I bit rubbish. I think that is copper, I think. Mm. So, 
Oh, I like that um, that cap, the sound of the cap. Yeah. That's really nice. That's as well, we could overuse this word elegant, but it has got an elegance. Yeah, that. it's a nice weight, it sounded like as well. There's something very nice about Isn't that. Isn't it funny, though, with things, it's like glassware, but that sort of thing of something feeling a little yeah, bit weighty. Yeah, it's just little, different cues as well yeah. that you get. And I, I just love the sound of the the screw of screw top on that was yeah. very nice indeed mm. very pleasing let me pass that over to Thank you. you so we are tasting mm. this neat at room temperature and what's your first impressions lovely juniper but i, I can't work out what else there is because it's not just the juniper i'm getting initially on the on the a nose little there's something bit of else. citrus on the nose mm. a dry yeah nice drying it or maybe it's um the herbaceous thing i'm getting i'm not quite sure i know that it's intriguing enough for me to want mm-hmm. to get right in there again it's very viscous as well i'm just twirling my glass around pretending i know what i'm doing <laughs> you look very good for doing that thank by the way. you mm. wow what's the abv on that well, it's interesting you say that. It's, it's 45.7. Yeah. You can tell it's a bigger body. Not mm. to say that it's it's overpowering. There's just something that is very assertive about it. Oh, it that's that a way. nice description. I like that. Thank assertive. you very much. Yeah. Thank you very oh, much. I, I, let me have another little taste. Mm. Actually, if you swirl it round mm. as well, you get more. It opens up more as well. Mm. It's beautiful. I think, oh, that is it's exquisite. I'm actually mm. going to jump ahead here too. Mm. I know sometimes we talk about do they have recommended serves and so forth, and some people do, some people don't. Mm. They've got a few. But one that jumped out of me, and now I really get it, is they talk about serving it neat on the rocks, mm. as you would a lot of premium spirits, but you don't always think of doing that with, with gin. gin yeah. And they they recommend, not unsurprisingly, like one large clear ice cube made of good quality water. Right. Because if they've gone to all this trouble. You don't want to no, bung in your absolutely. old tap water ice cubes or whatever. But I can imagine that as a sipping mm. experience. It's very um, contemplative, you know, because it's one of those, We, as you said, we've got it at room temperature, but you can feel all of these nuances coming out. And I can really imagine really sitting down slowly, letting it all, you know, reveal itself yeah. with, with the ice in there because there's a lot going on. They've balanced it beautifully, but you know that there's lots of different layers that will reveal themselves over time. So I'd, I'd really like to see that as the ice sort of works its yeah, magic I, in there. I couldn't agree more. Mm. I think that's amazing. I think it really does make sense as a drink to, to savour, as you say. Mm. And, and what, they what about price on that? Because oh. it feels it feels expensive. Well, you know what? For a 70 CL bottle, it's £42, oh, which I was really yeah. quite pleasantly surprised about mm. having tasted it. I think that's And also good, looking you know? at it, it's, a, it's one of those, even on a shelf, you'd sort of you'd think that is going to be a super, super premium yes. gin, you know, and, and also it looks great that you'd give that as a gift as yeah. well, I yeah. think. Yeah, because mm. not as well as that lovely uh, bottle, I, sh- I should have said it comes also in a beautiful piece of packaging, a nice box as well. Mm. So Kenobi Gin, uh, there are some other great recipes. They've got a great take on a dry martini and a few other wonderful recipes on their website. But we, I think we really like that. Yeah, yeah definitely. Okay. So that is Kenobi Gin and you can see picture of it and details of this and the lovely product sandra mentioned earlier 
And everything else we talk about is going to be on our uh, Instagram and on our website, thecocktaillovers.com. And now for a cocktail hack from one of our experts. Hi, everyone. I'm Lauren Moat, the co-founder of Bittered Sling Bitters. And my cocktail hack is finding the right cocktail book. It should be the only thing that you do because bakers can't become great if they don't use a recipe and bartenders cannot become great without recipes. Learn the classics and get yourself a great cocktail book to use at home. I recommend the Savoy Cocktail Book, PDT, or Jeff Morgenthaler's Bar Book. So we are starting to venture slightly further afield. Uh, <laughs> I know you mentioned earlier we are going to be looking at some bars overseas, which yes. we're really excited about. But recently we went a little bit further out from central London to yeah. what's that area called? Crouch End Thank or Couchons, as people like to say. <laughs> depends where you're from. Couchons. <laughs> oh, you make me laugh. So we're in that, a neighbourhood bar, yes. Little, Little Mercies. Little Mercies, it's such a fantastic treat. I mean, we do get a little bit spoiled sometimes. So we, so much happens in central and east, and it's easy to just stay in central and east London. But I am saying, if you if you're not in North London, this is definitely worth the the trek over. Absolutely. Little Mercy. So it was opened in 2018 by some really good stalwarts in the drinks industry. So we have Alan Sherwood, who used to work at Scout and Peg and Patriot. Yeah. And then also it's in collaboration with Max and Noel Venning that have three sheets. So this is to let you know that it's impeccable, impeccable drinks. Pedigree. Pedigree drinks and place and people. Um, So what they described it at the launch was bringing a slice of East London to North London and boy have they done it in droves. So what did you think of it? Well I I would say yeah it's a neighbourhood bar and Mm. it's one of those I'd say straight away every neighbourhood should have a bar. Oh my god I wish we did. (laughs) Actually it's just as well we don't we'd always be be in there. But it is amazing. Why? 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 Well let me describe the shape and feel of it first because um, it's it's not huge. I mean, it's it's probably the size of a shop in a sense, a mm. long tour. But what they've done brilliantly, it's very good use of the space, lots of clean lines. It's a little kind of minimalist, but not in a cold way. It's got no. a natural feel. The bar is like a kind of stone. There's rich blue leather bar stores, lots of exposed brickwork, big windows onto the street. Mm. So you get natural light during the day and in the evening you'll get that kind of twinkle of the being hunkered up in the autumn. Yeah, and you just feel the energy from outside as well, which is good. And if you were passing it, you'd want to go in. Yes, I think they've done that very clever. You can Mm. feel that finger beckoning you in. So the shape of it, there's a little bit of art going on. Very restrained back bar not a lot of bottles but they've chosen well so all of that combines to make it feel like somewhere you want to be mm, absolutely so we made sure they have got little breakaway areas so there's the the seating towards the windows or there's other little bits on the side and a little more cozy bit at the back but Depending we wanted on your to, vibe yeah, yeah we yeah. of course being us we wanted to be right in the action so that was sitting at the concrete sort of bar and just checking over there's also a little lab set up 
towards the back. Not not big, but enough to let you know that they do a little They're magic up to there. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what their beauty, I think, is is about complexity in a really simplified way. So everything's very clean, and, and that extends from the decor right through to the drinks. You know, it's this sort of very carefully considered but actually making it very simple for people to take in. And that does go for the flavours and the ingredients that they incorporate in the glass. So what did you have, Gary? Uh, I I had, there were two, mm. um, and there was one which caught my <laughs> eye straight away. But I'm going to tease you and come right, on to that in a right, moment. That's right. my second drink. But I, I started off with a kiwi gimlet. Oh, yeah, that was great. Uh, which was kiwi vodka, discarded Chardonnay vodka, and Mercy's gin, fermented kiwi, and magnolia leaf. Yeah, that was beautiful. And it's it was served in a really paired-back way in keeping with the look and feel of the, the, of the bar itself. Uh, a nice thin rocks glass, one big ice cube, slice of kiwi to garnish, mm. and... I checked this out. They used their own homemade gin, mm. which we also had a little taste of, which was delicious. So, yeah, it was just it picking up on your point about what the drinks were about. What I liked about this was on the one level, yes, it's a clever drink. There's all sorts of things gone on. But on the other level, it's a simple, Banging. approachable. <laughs> you don't have to know all this background no, stuff if no. you don't want to. And why should you if you don't want to? It's just a great yeah. drink. And also, I just love the the beauty of how they served it. Because as you say, the, the little thin sliver of kiwi on the top yep. of the ice, you know exactly what the flavour profile you're going to get, really. And it was just so beautiful and very favourite word coming through. Elegant. Elegant. And you, <laughs> and you had? I had something that I wouldn't have chosen, actually. Um, I, I asked our bartender, Tom, you know, just for, for a recommendation, and he said the Pisco Plus. Now, that wasn't something I would necessarily think, mm, I want a Pisco Plus. But it was... Um, <laughs> Have you ever had that moment where you think, oh, God, I could murder a Pisco Plus? Not really. But anyway, it was Pisco, caramelised white chocolate and meadow sweet distillate, kaffir lime, lemon, coconut and egg white. Mm. And I must tell you, it was a revelation. It yeah. was such... I remember the look on your yeah, face when you tasted it. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. And this is something for everybody to note. Don't always go for what you always go for. Sometimes take a little risk and go for something different because you will be pleasantly surprised. Yeah. Maybe not all the time, but in this case, I was so glad that I went down this route. It was beautiful. But I must say, there's so many great things that you want to choose from. So it was it was difficult making the choice. So a lot of the time, I won't ask a bartender for their recommendation. It's like, Jesus, they're busy enough. They don't have to And what, you don't think, know your own mind? They don't have to think <laughs> for you. But here, I'm, I'm really glad that I did. They have some other things. Like if you, if you love Cosmopolitans, there's Cosmopolitan twisted their way, still keeping the same... Um, profile, but they're doing clever things with the Campari distill in it and um, adding lemon, verbena, lime, cranberry, um, that lovely gimlet that you spoke about. Yeah. They have an, an amazing Bellini, which we did have as a, a welcome drink, which is um, Little Mercy's vodka, lacto fermented peach, hops, peach liqueur, 
and of course bubbles and then that takes us to our second drink which gary had been he had his eye on right <laughs> from the beginning what was that gary i saw something called a snickers old fashioned mm. and, and i was happy straight away it's like my two favorite things in one glass a snickers and an old-fashioned what's not to like what's not to like <laughs> um, i a very I, it, it inside uh, my increasing maturity i held back to have that as my second drink because i thought you can't really start with an old-fashioned <laughs> well you could do why not but i had my gimlet then i moved on to this and i should just point out it's not a snickers bar that has been steeped in spirit you know that do you remember that sort of phase i don't know if it still happens but i'm going back like 15 20 years ago where places used to just cup a mars bar and leave it in vodka and then say it's a mars bar of vodka do you remember well, that or was it just me <laughs> i remember that it was yeah, a thing i it suppose thing. it's experimentation yeah. okay so that's back in yesteryear mm. so no this is not that but i like the fact it's called that because it nods towards the ingredients which are peanut butter um, Your mouth is watering, actually, <laughs> thinking about it. I can hear that. Salted chocolate and da Jack Daniels whiskey and cocoa. And so it's kind of all the elements that you associate, I associate, with a Snickers, my favourite chocolate bar, um, but put together with whiskey. But again, the way it was served, it was in that thin rocks glass, very pared back and, and just simple and <laughs> delicious it was delicious yeah. i could easily just drink that all evening yeah i also went for an old-fashioned because i thought it would be really good you went to... for a grown-up old-fashioned well it wasn't that i would have gone for the snickers old-fashioned but i thought it was good to do a compare and contrast so mm. i went for the ultra corn old-fashioned which was oh, buttered yeah. Yeah, baby yeah. blue corn with buttered baby blue corn whiskey popcorn nixta corn liqueur gum arabic and bitters now it was it was hugely corny it was a big a good burst yeah, yeah big burst of corn and i loved it but i really loved yours more so it, it was one <laughs> of those where i got a little bit of glass envy because i kept sipping yours and i loved mine but i would have loved it more if you hadn't had what you had <laughs> if you could see folks what sandra's doing right now she's gesticulating if i can use that word on air with both hands like one left one right yes, one left yes, one right yes. yours mine yours yeah, mine it was delicious yeah. but also we have to talk about the food here because yes. the food is on par with the drinks and yes. this is what barsh food should be like yeah it's perfectly portioned and absolutely delicious it's sort of it's chefy bar snacks you know yeah. that really every bite is like a an explosion of flavor and it's it's kind of tapas style and i don't mean mm. tapas as in it is spanish because it ain't mm. tapas style in, they're, they're small plates you can just pick dip in and dip out throughout your evening think oh i fancy another little plate i fancy mm. another little plate as you order another cocktail. So it was those small sharing Really plates. lovely, really. Don't leave without trying something, you know. Yeah. We can recommend anything on the list. We had um, carrots with kombucha barbecue, tahini and pumpkin seed. There was a um, oh, Korean I, corn dog with katsu oh sauce, God, red yeah. cabbage. And crispy, crispy rice, rice. Yeah, 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 and tartar yeah. sauce. Everything. Yeah, but as I say, and, and also, you know, chips as chips, well yeah good quality but chips fantastic but you know chip. that thing of like i say you could just dip in and it's and what i love about people who do this well is 
you you don't just go there and then go somewhere else. You just no, you definitely down for stay one yeah, hour, for the two evening. hour, three hours. You know, have another cocktail, have another dish, have another cocktail, have another dish. Mm. Happy days. Yeah, really good. So we thoroughly recommend we Little Mercies. So that's our little venture to North London, and we will be back with more little travels, <laughs> cocktail lovers' travels, in our next episode. But do check into our um, Instagram feed and fa- uh, uh, website. Do check into our Instagram feed and website for more details. But Little Mercies gets the thumbs up from the cocktail lovers. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Cocktail Lovers podcast. If you are, why not leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts? And feel free to get in touch with ideas and suggestions, or if you'd like to work with us, just visit our website, thecocktaillovers.com, and click on the contact button. Keep it in line with the Japanese spirit that we were talking about earlier. I've got a wonderful book here. I've been dying to talk about this. I mean, we've got actually so many new books that have come in. We've got we've had to clear more space in our library, haven't we? But there's some great books yeah. that we'll be reviewing over the next few months. Um, yeah, actually, on that point, because there are so many great ones that have come in, and also a number of people have been in touch with us about the books we've talked about already and i think what we should do maybe as we close in on the christmas season yeah is maybe look, do a bit of a roundup of some of the highlights yes, of the books. Yeah, yeah and good gifts as, as well and we may be giving away some books so keep tuned in for mm. this but anyway for this episode i am going for the way of the cocktail japanese traditions techniques and recipes by julia mimose with Emma Jansen. This book, I love it so much. It's for a start, it's beautifully tactile from the cover, but I just love the way that it's been put together, the research that's gone into it, the way that it's explained and broken down, and just all round awesomeness, quite frankly. I'll pass it over to you yeah. while I talk. So um, it's by Japanese American bartender and owner Julia Mimos. And she is a James Beard Award winner for this book. And uh, honestly, I, I can understand why. It's beautifully photographed and illustrated. And like the subject that it covers, it's, there's something really calming and clean and very zen about the layout. It's divided into parts. So part one explains the Japanese way of eating and drinking and includes bits on omatenashi, which is the pinnacle of hospitality and what Japanese bartending is all about, really, which is serving the guest and providing the optimum in hospitality. It's about being selfless and and just making sure that your guest is really happy with, with their service. It also goes into the history of cocktails in Japan, the various tools and techniques, and there are a lot of tools in Japanese Why bartending. Why am I not surprised? Yeah, that, well, you, you know, know, I mean, yeah. we, we have certain amount of tools, but because there's such a big emphasis on ice and things like that, they've got saws, tongs, ice picks, all sorts of things. And this really breaks it down really beautifully and then includes some of the the regular tools that you have, but also the way that they're incorporated in Japanese um, bartending. It also gives you the lowdown on the various beverages in in 
Japan. So you, it gives you explanations of sake, soshu, koju, koji, sorry, and liqueurs, but also regular things like gin as well, which we've which we've just tasted. And then part two goes into the recipes. And they, again, are absolutely beautiful. And it explains um, the micro seasons. So we just have spring, summer, autumn, winter. Yeah. But in Japan, they have micro seasons. And they are, it's about 24, I think. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, they have different. Yeah. I, I hope I've got that right. I think it's 24. Yes, 24 micro seasons. And they... The recipes incorporate all of that and the flow of life in Japan. So it will include recipes that are really at their optimum peak, it include uh, ingredients, I mean. Uh, at, at a certain time. Yeah, at yeah. a certain time. And then also the mood at that time. You know, it's just so wonderful. Honestly, I, I can't stop enthusiasm about this book because even if you don't want to make cocktails, but you are intrigued about... Japanese style or art or the way of doing things generally is such a beautiful read and and the way the pace that it flows it's just gorgeous absolutely gorgeous can I, can I jump in on also mm. the thing you said about the seasons I really liked that when I was looking at the book just now the, the breakdown of the seasons and also because it was interesting because when I was talking earlier about Kenobi mm. we mentioned like the beauty of the seasons and it's it's obviously a really important part it's of very, the, the culture and the drinks culture and and something it's I a think, respect of nature yeah, and actually. I think that is something we've lost a lot mm. as, over the years is cooking seasonally mm. and, and when you do cook seasonally it's a much more rewarding experience because now we can get everything all Whenever, the time yeah um but when you think of uh, autumn and winter and what's what you make food with, what you cook with. I think the same thing for cocktails, mm. I think is really intriguing. I love the idea of thinking, right, not as you said, those micro seasons, thinking, okay, I'm at this point in the year, what is the drink? Not only in terms of ingredients, but almost spiritually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I and love that. As I say, it is about respect, and, and that is the, the way that they approach the hospitality, but also the way they approach the ingredients and the rituals of, of bartending. Yeah. You know, it's something really so unique to, to Japan. And that's why so many people look, they really revere Japanese yes. bartending skills, I think. Um, so it's not just about recipes, but rituals, traditions, techniques and culture. And yeah, she's got some traditional recipes, but also She's got some riffs on Japanese best love cocktails as well. So, and some non-alk things. Yeah, it's just, I love it. I, I can't stop talking about it and looking at it it's, and it's feeling beautiful. it. It's, it's just, as you said earlier, the texture of the cover. Is, yes. And texture is so important, isn't yeah, it? The yeah, the layout is great. It's one of my favourites, actually, at the moment. And it is the way of the cocktail Japanese traditions, techniques and recipes. And the price, it's around £20 because you can find it on various different yeah. um, different outlets. And Good, I value, thoroughly I recommend yeah. it. Bartender, brand ambassador, training coordinator, consultant. You name it, Alex Francis has done it but it's safe to say that since moving from the UK to Paris in 2019 he's found his happy place 
behind the famous multi-award winning Little Red Door. He started there as general manager before making his way to director of bars for Bonamy Group, the parent company, last year. One of his major products has been transitioning the menu to a genius farm-to-glass model, where the producers and their products are the stars of the glass, which is what we want to talk to Alex about today. Alex, welcome to the Cocktail Lovers podcast. Hello. Lovely to have you here, Alex, and thank you for being our first guest for season four. So firstly, how has your summer been? We hear that you've got a lovely, shiny new trophy in the cabinet. Tell us what it's for and how receiving it has made you feel. So yeah, our, our summer was was really wonderful. It was obviously a very different summer to last year, and and we felt that in Paris actually we had so much built up tourism that it was kind of overwhelming. Paris normally goes to sleep in the summer, and we were overrun, which was incredible because we were we were busy as well around the world. We were incredibly lucky to be invited to present our our approach to bartending in I think four different continents in the summer and along the way we were in New Orleans and we were incredibly fortunate to, to win an award along alongside yourselves actually at the Spirited Awards for world's best cocktail menu and congratulations for best broadcaster podcast or online series. Thank you so Thank much you. I mean that is a big one to win that amazing award for the world's best cocktail menu how did that make you feel? Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, I think it's it's a really lovely award in the industry because it's very it's it's one of the ones that really feels very specific to a way of a piece of work. I think a lot of the other awards are very reflective of people's you know careers or, or moments in people's careers that are definitely incredibly important to recognise it and mean a lot to those people. But I think for ourselves as a team. Our menu is almost our manifesto of how we work. It it represents how we work and what we do. And to see that rewarded is almost, for us, it felt like a recognition of the importance of that or the success of of marketing ourselves in that way and creating this message for our consumers that seems to have resonated specifically with the North American audience in this case. Let's pick up on that because uh, for listeners who don't know, could you tell us a little bit about the principles of Grounded and Flourish or two farm-to-glass menus? You know, how did you come up with the idea and uh, how did you go about, importantly, forging those relationships? Yeah, so the the central ethos of Grounded and Flourish is very much farm-to-table. So the sen- the mechanism within that means that we source our produce directly we convert that into a product within the menu so it can be a liqueur or a spirit or even some kind of something as simple as a soda and then this is the base of the cocktail we do all of this within the height of each product season to preserve the very best version of that product and then this drink is then built around it the drink is named after the produce and each page that you find the drink on has information about who the producer is where they are in france how they work and in the last two menus we've worked in two different kind of media formats for photography one of which was straight portraiture the other one was more reportage photos in a collage style it was born out of covid actually we we launched our last menu three days before the lockdown the first ever lockdown in france it was very much you know a kind of bittersweet sensation it was incredibly we felt very lucky to get the menu out just before covid so that all that work wasn't just sat there we know a few bars in paris who were unfortunately just the other side of that cutoff and we then sat thinking well what do we do for our next menu and obviously covid reshaped our our thinking or or our our view on the world and the main thing we could see is you know 
all of these big brands, all of these large companies, they disappeared for us. And understandably so, you know, the individuals within them were furloughed, they were put on leave, the businesses stopped their activity and they, were, they lived off of the reserves of cash that they'd built up. But the small producers, we saw them every day because they were struggling in the same way we were. These weren't multi-million dollar businesses that had cash reserves for days. They were people who went out and, you know, they saw this as, I need to find a way to make a living. And obviously when we look in our immediate circle, those are distributors and small craft brands. But as we looked further along that and we kept having conversations, we realized that at the end of this were the producers and producers can't go out and hustle and find a way to make ready to drink cocktails at home. They plan five years in advance or 10 years in advance in some cases. And so their product is pretty fixed. And the more we talked about kind of what we wanted to do and how we wanted to use our platform. And I think that's one of the things we discuss a lot is we're incredibly privileged at Little Red Door to be in a city like Paris, which in the one hand is within France. So we're, we're incredibly well looked after, you know, there was no concern for us on a day to day basis for our staff because everybody was supported incredibly generously for nearly a year and a half. But also we're in a city like Paris, which is one of the number one tourist cities in the world. And so there was no real worry that when Little Red Door reopens, it wasn't going to go back to some version of success that it had before. So we realized this is an opportunity for us to use that audience, use that platform that Little Red Door had built over 10 years to, to really hopefully make a meaningful change to the the reality, the day-to-day -day realities of those producers at the time. And to be honest, it, it, I always describe it as like pulling on a thread in a jumper. We, we had no idea, you know, how it was going to manifest itself in the end. We didn't know that we were, I mean, yesterday I got told at nine o'clock in the evening that our plum harvest is ready and that's 500 kilograms of plums coming wow. in, in two days. And, you know, that's an incredibly daunting task every time someone tells you you've got close to a ton of produce coming in. We had no idea that we would need to move out of our, our little basement lab below Little Red Door and into a, our, we're now on our second fully fledged lab area, which has ability to food process on a, a large scale store, thousands of liters of stock. You know, we didn't realize that this was going to change the the day to day work patterns of our staff members. We, to be honest, the only bit that really hasn't changed because of that is actually the guest experience. The guest experience is still ultimately the same. They still interact with what they perceive as a conceptual menu. The drinks still look and feel very little red door, but pretty much everything else behind that has changed. And it, yeah, it wasn't something we intended at the beginning, but we're incredibly happy with how we've gone over the last two menus. We have a third one kind of following up in in this vein. And it, it, there was no guidebook before that. And so one of the things we try to do now is we try to use those learnings to better educate other bars and venues on how they can make simple changes to make to make an improvement on a day to day or how they can start to indicate the huge change that is trying to make this your your actual core of your bar program. Well, so on that note, Alice, what what are you saying? Because it is very you you've learned a lot in a short space of time, and it's turned into something that you probably could never have imagined. So now the bars are coming to you and asking for advice. What would you say? What sort of things do you guide them with? Entry processes, really. 
Yeah, I mean, the, there, there are a couple of sites, you know, that often people will come and they'll say, like, I have no idea where to start. How do I start doing this? Or they'll come in and say, you know, I want to do this, but my venue is a small part of a wider uh, establishment or I work in an environment like a hotel where, you know, my purchasing power and decision making isn't particularly large. How can I make these improvements? And we always say kind of two things. One is on a very, very real scale is just look at your best-selling drinks and see if there is a way that you can take one ingredient from that and see if you can source it directly. On most bars that you come across, they will have some kind of recognizable native flavor where, you know, if it's in Northern Europe, it's things like this time of year, strawberries, raspberries, blackberries. They grow natively in, in those, this area of the world. You can easily get hold of those. But the other side, which is a little bit deeper, but is more for kind of bar owners and business managers, when they start talking about doing this, you know, they go, I don't know where to start. We'll often say, print off your, your bank statement and look for where the money's going. If you want to make the biggest possible change, it's your where your money goes in this industry and make that one change there, you know, whether it's the whiskeys provider you use move to one which is trying to is has a, a set target of being carbon neutral within a certain period of time whether it's sourcing a product that is just domestically produced rather than imported there are i mean there's no right or wrong way to do it we we are very open that there are not flaws but there are satisfactory solutions that we found within our approach and so we would never want to preach to someone that this is a there is a right and a wrong way to do it and especially within conversations around trying to be more sustainably conscious mind trying to be more progressive it's very easy to get caught, pulled into that conversation of being a, a purist and an evangelist about these issues which i think it doesn't do anybody any flavors it alienates consumers, it alienates the general public from engaging in these conversations. But you can still make improvements and an improvement is better than nothing. Going back very specifically to the menu, you mentioned, for example, the, the plums coming in, but could you give us a couple of examples of the drinks on your menu, either the ones that are really going down particularly well or your own particular favourites, but some examples of, of this philosophy in action? Yeah, so probably the best seller on the current menu is citrus. This For this drink, we create a single variety liqueur. So we work with Bacchus Agrams. They're one of the most famous citrus farms in Europe. I actually work mainly with two and three Michelin star restaurants in the north of Spain, the north of Italy, and the south of France. Probably one of the most high profile clients is Anne-Sophie Peak uses it regularly every citrus season, but also in her, in her gym. He, Etienne himself is a bioconservationist and the work he does with his wife, Perrine, they've built up a incredible library, basically, of either heritage citrus that they're trying to protect or hybrid citrus, which is better adapted to the modern world in a view to preserve some of the genealogy of these. And what that means is he has an incredible amount of purely, completely unique citrus within their groves. Within that, we went and picked three or four different citrus. We created individual single citrus liqueurs. Some of them are things like Poimelo, which is an incredibly, it's almost grotesquely large 
pomelo variant, which looks like a pear, hence the name. It is incredibly bitter, but incredibly fragrant also. So we made a variety from this. We used Tangelolo, which is, again, a variety. We're not really sure if these are the real names. They're what, Etienne and Perrine Tellers? <laughs> I was going to say, um, I've not heard of any. <laughs> no, well, half the time they say to us, well, like, is this the real name? And they're like, well, it doesn't exist anywhere else. So I guess we get to name it. But, yes, yeah, that's true. And so, yeah, we, we use this with a French sake that actually uses French rice from Carmag in the south, a small amount of verju, which is an acidic grape juice, or an alternative to lemon and lime in some cases, and a Mediterranean botanical spirit. And the drink comes out somewhere between a gimlet and a daiquiri, incredibly refreshing, a little bit boozier and smoother than a, and a daiquiri, but still has that acidity and obviously the distinct citric flavor. We have a drink called olive as well, which is a, is a oh, particular crowd. I love that one. <laughs> yeah. It's a, for people, for, for cocktail lovers, it is one of the more interesting ones because it's an incredibly distinct flavor profile. It, the, we, we try and tread a, a tightrope of, you know, we want to be as innovative and progressive with the way we put our drinks together. We want to create unique and exciting flavors, but we also want this approach to be as, as accessible as possible for the consumer. And so we have drinks like citrus and raspberry, which are very approachable, very familiar flavor profiles. And we have things like olive, which We've so far we haven't had anybody who hasn't loved it, even if they don't like the flavor of olives. The the wonder of making cocktails is you can show someone a flavor in a completely unique and distinct flavor or experience. Olives are a great example of that because when you remove the sensation of actually eating quite a fatty salinic olive and you take the fragrant flavor of olive fruit and olive oil, it, it becomes an incredibly different thing. But yeah, and these are also two examples of producers who you know. They're very protective about their produce. They really, they don't just give these to anybody. You know, they're not going to just let you place an order by email and say, okay, good luck. Etienne and Perrine are probably the best example because they do work with Michelin chefs. They normally work on incredibly long periods of time with them to make a hybrid for a chef, which is often what most chefs want to do. They want their own variety of citrus. That takes about 12 years of work with Etienne. But he point blank just refused to answer our calls, our emails. I think in the middle of COVID, he wasn't really sure of our sincerity, but also it's a bar. He didn't understand what we wanted. I did uh, want to ask about that. Sorry, Alex. Yeah, no, no, please you will get to it. But this is not an ordinary thing to just pitch up at a farm and ask for, for produce. So I just no. wanted to ask about how you build those relationships and how you went about it. You know, it's, it's something that takes a lot of time and a lot of consideration. So can you explain to our listeners how you went yeah. about that? So the first bit, Etienne is the first person we actually convinced to be on the menu. And the way we did that is we turned up, which does, it seems like quite a small sentence, but Etienne, for context, lives in the Pyrenees, so essentially in Spain. And so we got on a train first thing in the morning from Paris. He he'd kind of openly said, eventually he did reply to one of our mails, and he said, well, if you come down and see us, maybe we can talk about it and we'll see if you're serious or not, in, in, in other words. And so we went down and we he was so surprised that a group of bartenders from Paris turned up and wanted to see his produce. He he I think that kind of just put him on the back foot a little bit and opened him up a little bit more for us. Some of the producers are a little bit more savvy and so they they're aware of the power of marketing. So often the easiest way for us would be then to find if they have a social media presence and do it through little red doors so they could immediately see the kind of audience that we had, which would often help. But 
a lot of it comes from informal networks and it comes it's, it's kind of like bars in a way oh no it's kind of it's very similar to the bar world it's a very small world there are a lot of people within it who know a lot of other people who have very similar interests who are all watching what each other do and so farmers are always aware of it of what each other are doing and so once you get a couple key people involved we have a, a really important partner we work a lot with it just outside of paris in normandy called tom and he's a, a permaculture farmer he actually works with a very famous permaculture kind of educator in quebec and he's responsible for the majority of permaculture farming in france and he gave us a big into this network because once people started seeing that we were working with tom when people saw that tom who admittedly when we first turned up to meet him i think one of the first things he said was yeah so you guys just want to do this you know get a few photos for your marketing and then you guys will be gone in like half an hour or so and we're like no tom we, we want to see your farm we want to know what you do we want to see if this you're put someone we want to work with and by the end of that day, he understood that we really wanted to champion producers. And so then he probably a little bit over eagerly introduced myself and Tim to literally nearly everybody in that area of Normandy who works in kind of progressive farming. That then obviously was seen by a lot of other farmers around France. And now once a week or so, I have a, a farm in France sliding into my DM saying, <laughs> oh, have you seen my amazing tomatoes? Or did you know I was growing this in France? And and that, that exploration, you know, France is an incredibly privileged community in this way. It has an incredible history of agriculture that we can pull from. And it also also has an incredibly diverse terroir. So if you go all the way up to the Northwest, it basically looks like the UK. It's incredibly soft green ground. You can grow plenty of apples, pears, and in the height of summer, you can get market vegetables. But outside of that is wet and cold. If you go down to the Southeast, it is incredibly arid, very, very dry, looks like the South of Spain in parts. And in those areas, you can grow things like olives incredibly well. And so we're very blessed that we have people from all over the country showing us an incredible variety of produce. But for us, the main thing was once you start going and speaking to these people, you start to realize, I mean, we, the other day we had somebody tell us that they knew somebody growing pineapples in Normandy. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> most of these farmers aren't very good at advertising that. They don't, they know how to grow it. And it's actually something that this partner we work with, Tom, his farm is actually an educational space as well. So he trains farmers for two years. You do one year in the field learning how to grow crops. But the second year, you learn how to run a business of a farm. Because he said, if you go to a bank in any modern developed country and you say, oh, I want a loan for a, a thousand acres at a combine harvester and I'm going to grow corn you'll get the loan because the bank knows exactly how much money that makes and if it's profitable. And as long as you can, if they think you can grow it where you say you can, then it's a sound investment for them. But if you say to them, I want to buy a small house with a couple fields behind it, and I'm going to grow everything with permaculture, and I'm going to have five staff members in the summer, and we're not going to do anything in the winter. They don't understand the business model. They don't understand the vocabulary. So he spends a lot of time in that second year making, getting these people to understand what is it you need to get that loan to get the farm in the first place. What kind of prices do you need to charge to make a profit and make a living off of this and after that? And then ultimately as well is how do you build your brand? How do you market? What is your community you're, you're sustaining? You know, it's very, well, I was going to say very easy. It's relatively straightforward to open a farm in the middle of nowhere. But finding how you then get that produce to somebody and to a community. And if you're talking about sustainable growing practices, you need people nearby. You need people there to buy this. So he, 
working with people like Etienne and Perrine, like Tom, we have a Marion and Florian, our, our olive farmers in the Southeast as well. They're always our way in now. They're a good person to kind of make that first introduction for us and, and kind of validate us in the eyes of these producers. And then once you start placing orders, they become your best friends. Yeah, they know. They know that you're serious. Then. Yeah, exactly. So tell us, with the two menus, how have they gone down with your guests? Because you, you are known for your drinks and you are doing all of these wonderful creative things with, with the farm produce that you're getting. But how does that translate to the glass and the, your guests' enjoyments of the drinks? It's, I think it's really interesting because we... When we first launched Grounded, we we kind of knew that Anglo guests, this kind of the vocabulary we were using would be very familiar for them. You know, mm. it's I think it's been now 15 years or so since the first kind of farm to table restaurants or, or were restaurants using that terminology farm to table kind of started popping up, especially in coastal America. Right. You think all the way back to people like Dan Barber, who, who obviously has had great success. So we knew that Anglo guests, if we start speaking about farm to table they would understand they would need a little bit of explanation in terms of how we actually do that as a cocktail bar but because they had this incredible vocabulary for farm to table for local produce and for cocktail bars it wasn't going to be that much of a leap for them to understand what we were doing and and that's definitely been the case but what we really underestimated was french guests don't really know cocktail bars it's not part of their culture the wording for farm to table isn't really well known in france because actually French daily consumption is a lot closer to farm to table eating and drinking because of their ingrained regional eating and drinking habits that the idea that you would that buying local and supporting local produce is kind of a novel thing to them it doesn't really exist it's part of most people's experience of growing up outside of the kind of the major urban areas like Lyon and Paris so in that way, we were incredibly surprised. Little Red Door's always struggled, you know, I always think of it as when Little Red Door had very conceptual menus, people from around the world who went to the world's best bars would love the experience of Little Red Door because it'd be a, you know, a real escapism. It would be really like an intellectual uh, experience to go and go, oh, this does this is exactly how I imagine brutalism would taste in a glass or oh, this is what I imagine, you know, strength feels like in a glass or, you know, it's not. And, th and those disagreements were intentional. You know, the idea that you'd pro propose this idea was this conversation starter for Little Red Door with their guest about, well, if this wasn't what you think strength was, what would strength be like? And this was very literal. You know, there's, if someone says it doesn't taste like citrus, probably doesn't taste like citrus mm. so that was a bit yeah. difficult but what we what we fell in love with was that from anglo guests and touristic guests they kind of liked it it almost acts as a way to discover france through a different lens mm. but for french guests they they don't need an explanation as to why you do it and they always needed and i always think of i had a french guest i think one of my first shifts in little red door we had a menu based on language and I said, this is a menu based on language. It's how we interpret our cocktails. And he just stared at me and just said, why? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think it's Fair a fair enough. question. When, you're, when you don't really understand why people, you don't really appreciate cocktail drinking compared to, you know, wine culture or brewing culture, etc. It is a valid question. You know, why would you do this? What does this add to the experience? It, it's not necessarily immediately obvious. But when you say to people that we work with local producers, we valorize the produce, we're here to, you know, 
act as, as champions for these hidden heroes behind a lot of the way or what our industry is built on. French guests, especially, they, they get it. And, and they, what they love as well is that they recognize, you know, every, we put the departments of every single producer on the menu. So you know where in France they're from. And they either recognize the name and they're like, oh, I've heard of this, I've heard of this produce, but I never had a chance to have it. Or, oh, I have an uncle who lives over there. I remember having it one summer. Or it's their region. And they're incredible. They, like, they love telling their friends, oh, you know, this is our region. This is what we do with this. This is how this flavor resonates with me from this kind of cuisine or this kind of drinking. And so in a, it, it's made us connect with our French audience in a way that we've never been able to do. Oh, and I think nice. the uh, touristic audience, as we expected, you know, it's something that they fully understand. Alex, I was going to ask you, because you've taken us over the last 15 20 minutes you've taken us all over france which has been wonderful and you've taken us into the experience in little red door i was wondering if you could now come home with us and thinking about our listeners and also people like sandra and i who like to make drinks at home and we want to be more mindful of what we do can you give us a few tips on how we can take some of those principles and execute them in our home mixing yeah i, I think the best and easiest way to, to go about working more directly with producers in your day-to-day -day life is in the, in urban spaces is farmers markets. They're the simplest way to get direct access to these farms. But that's not always possible. I know in, in London there are a few, but they're, they're not as, you know, prominent as cities like, you know, New York and Paris, for example. There's a lot there. They're a lot more part of the day-to-day -day culture. So an alternative to that is a lot of farms now, especially in Europe and America, have started to work with doing things similar to like HelloFresh boxes. So they'll often do through their season, they'll provide boxes of produce that's available. But just finding some way to actually meet producers and to see their produce on offer is really important because it's going to make you start to connect to what is actually growing in your region in day-to-day -day in that time of year. And and that's super important because that's half the challenge is just changing your mindset of instead of wanting it, it's a consequence of, I think, the the incredibly well-developed urban systems we have now mean that most people are not, they, we don't like being challenged with in unavailability or delays. And so people are often used to having the same flavors all year round. And that's part of the issue is that if we don't change our consuming habits, we aren't able to better accommodate local producers because the local producers aren't able, especially ones that work in progressive farming techniques like permaculture or organic, they aren't able to grow the same thing all year round. And so better learning what grows at what time of year in your region is incredibly important. Just an example, if you, if you try and Google what's in season, depending on what language you search, it depends on where you're going to find that information. If you write it in English, you're going to start hearing about North American seasonality more than anything else. But that isn't the same as the UK. The UK has a very different seasonality to a large parts of North America. And, and that's half the, the battle is understanding what's available. Beyond that, one of the easiest things you can do is just start learning very, very, very basic preservation techniques. You know, making sugar syrups, making saccharums, making pickles, making liqueurs. You know, most of those are based on, on very simple ratios. For pickling, you've got three parts sugar, two parts water, one part vinegar is a simple way to pickle pretty much anything. One-to-ones for your infusions, having 5% brine to pickle things. The, when you're working or when you're eating farm to table, obviously you'd, you'd love to be able to eat fresh every single day. 
but it's not that possible, you know, which I think is the experience of a lot of people when they start going to farmer's markets is you end up with your your veg basket at the bottom of your, your fridge full of things that you just don't, you don't know immediately how you're going to use it. It's that impulse buy, you buy at the market and you go, oh, I'm sure I'll find a way to use this. It looks beautiful. And then it sits there and then it goes bad and then it's wasted. So it's making stocks and freezing them, making soups and freezing them, pickling, juicing, having, you know, just an, an ample supply of sugar, salt, vinegar, vodka on hand. And you can make so many different things. And once you start to do that, you start to build up a pantry of things that are all farm to table. They're not fresh, but they're bought locally. You know where they're from. And you start getting in a habit because you start to see the value of it. it ultimately, you shouldn't be... You shouldn't be making yourself a martyr. You should be incorporating this in a healthy, sustainable way. It's like anything, you know, if you if you want to do make meaningful change in your life, you're gonna have to do you have to do this in a a replicable, repeatable way. Brilliant. That is absolutely excellent. Packed with so much information, not just on what you're doing at the bar, but what we can do at home and also to think more about what we're thinking and drinking as well. So thank you so much, Alex. And I must say, if if you haven't been to Little Red Door and sampled their menu, you absolutely must. It's absolutely brilliant. So thank you so much, Alex. It's been a joy. No, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. The latest issue of the Cocktail Lovers magazine is available now. As always, we're looking at the people, places, products and much, much more that we're loving in the cocktail world. To get your print or digital copy, simply visit thecocktaillovers.com slash magazine.